Welcome to Out of Material with me, Alexander Desi. In this series, I will be exploring the working minds of material scientists, specialists, designers, and thinkers, contemplating consumerism, design, sustainability, and climate change by looking to the future of material innovation and emerging technology. Alessandro Matura is a researcher, lecturer and tutor at the University of Birmingham, specialising in high temperature metallurgy with extensive analytical and modelling work on single crystal, nickel and cobalt superalloys. He has been published multiple times in international scientific journals and has led many of the modules I have attended at university, as well as being my personal tutor. This interview starts quite abruptly, as I've moved a section of the conversation regarding the COVID-19 pandemic to the end of the episode. Holding a pastoral role alongside academia has provided Alessandro with a fascinating insight into the challenges of the past years. I highly recommend listening to the end of the recording for some poignant and thoughtful contemplations on learning during the pandemic. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoy this interview. We'd be quite interested to hear about your personal route into material science. I knew you would. You were going to ask that. Um, my my route to material science, uh, it's it's happened like similar to what has happened to a lot of people, which has been a little bit by accident. And sometimes I like to say that the way I discovered the subject was just by mindlessly looking at the course list in UCAS when I applied to study in the UK. And I remember just looking through this course list. And at that time, I was interested. I was really undecided between physics and engineering, and I kind of liked aerospace engineering, but I had a cousin who was an aerospace engineer who kind of put me off the idea of studying aerospace engineering because he had graduated and was struggling to find jobs in, in that sector. Um, and, and so I was just looking at, at courses on, on, on the UCAS course finder, and I found this course called Aerospace Materials, and I was like, that sounds interesting. And I just added it as a fifth choice. I was looking for five choices and I really just didn't think about it. And I added it on. Uh, so that's the story I, I, I usually tell when, when someone first asks me about, um, about uh, uh, how I came uh, first to, to encounter the discipline. In reality, if I have to actually be really honest and think about it, I, I, I'd always been fascinated from materials and biomaterials. And, and if I dig a little bit deeper in my youth. I, I remember as a kid, at some point, my parents um, subscribed me to the Focus magazine, the BBC Focus magazine, uh, the English version, because they thought that by uh, getting that, I could practice English. I was in Italy, I would, you know, I would speak Italian, and, and so they thought that by giving this to me, they, they would get me to learn English in the process, because I was interested in, in science and technology. And uh, one uh, month, one, one issue, I remember there was a, an article about shape memory alloys. And I remember being fascinated by that. I mean, I was 12 or 13 at the time. So to remember a specific article, that, that, it must have made an impression on me. Um, and uh, I remember because you could send a little postcard that you could cut out from the corner of the Focus magazine and send it in. And you could be um, randomly picked to be sent a, a shape memory alloy spring. Um, uh, and I and I did that and didn't get anything. Uh, but uh, but I remember thinking, how cool would it be if I, if I got something like that? And and so that kind of was probably one way that I was I knew I was fascinated by materials. Um, another way is that I was a lot into sailing as a kid. I, I sailed a lot, and I spent summers um, in sailing camps. And I really enjoyed fixing the hulls of sailing boats and working with glass fiber and epoxy resins to, to, to fix, um, to fix the, the actual hulls. And I, I found that whole process fascinating and interesting. And I, and I remember really enjoying it and, and working with the materials to, to fix these boats that, that you know, wear and sea worthy. Um, and by doing that, I would be able to make them go back on the sea again. And I, and I always found that really cool that I could repair the hull of the boat um, with not too much work. That was probably more, more truthfully where I, where I found my route into the discipline. And then when I happened to see that, that course, I kind of picked it and then I read more about it and I was like, this is just exactly what I, what I like. So yeah, so that was, that was how I got into material science and engineering. 
So it's remarkably resonant, actually, because I think it's I think it's the same for so many people is that you kind of go into it not really knowing what the subject is, really. Uh, you know, you, you kind of go in thinking, oh, this is some niche science. But then as soon as you start grounding the theory of materials into the stuff that you're interested in and the materials that you interact with in day to day life and actually taking stock of, oh, every single thing I use has been touched by a material scientist in some way and you know yeah. i can i can study the, the intricacies of every single thing around me and there's so much complexity there i think that's what makes people really fall in love with the subject yeah so i was, just, I was wondering if you could talk, talk a bit about your your research high temperature metallurgy single crystal and uh, nickel and cobalt super alloys so something I'm, I'm quite interested in is, is just this idea of kind of simplicity of form so single crystals mm-hmm. conferring theoretically the, the most opt- optimum properties that, that you can get out of out of this these kind of materials now i was kind of wondering if there's a much of a gap between the theoretical performance you know what what you imagine might be possible and what you actually see that that is an interesting question actually because i think you could almost if you were to to look at all materials you could almost break them down into two groups on one side you've got materials where you actually want to promote the formation of defects you want defects you want heterogeneity you want things going essentially wrong with it in order to optimize the properties and get what you want out of that material at the other end of the spectrum you've got materials where you actually want to make them perfect you want them not to have any defects you want them to be pristine you want them to be as simple as possible so traditional you know you would i would argue traditional structural materials i steel and aluminium alloys uh, they tend to be the, the first class. This, this, they, their properties are very much there and they are developed by the presence of defects. Um, and you often use processes that promote the formation of these defects because through the promotion of these defects, you, you get the properties you want. And uh, on the other end of the spectrum, you, you tend to have usually functional materials where you, for example, want uh, semiconductors to not have any defects or very, very few defects uh, to be performing as they should. Mind you, as I say that, now, uh, you know, uh, the performance of materials as semiconductors, although we want them to be free of dislocations, we actually dope them. So we add defects to them to make them behave the way we want them to behave. So actually now thinking about it, everything really has defects and it's about controlling those defects that, that makes the properties that you want. In the field that I work in, which is high temperature metallurgy, uh, the, the alloys that I work on, as you know, are, are what the alloys that I mostly work on, are, as you know, are single crystal. And um, I have to qualify that a little bit because when you talk to a physicist and you say single crystal, and they think uh, essentially a, a perfect homogeneous material that is made out of a single phase. And in reality, that is not the case. We have two phases in, in our materials, two different crystal structures, and there is lots and lots of defects. There is dislocations, uh, there is vacancies, there is anti-site defects. Um, so even though they are single crystal, they're not uh, by any, <laughs> any way perfect. They definitely, um, definitely have got things wrong with them. And those things that are wrong, those defects, are, are what enables uh, the properties. That said, uh, yes, sometimes trying to achieve uh, perfection in, in, some, in some sense is, is what really drives the properties. And in the case of creep properties, which is the high temperature behavior of the materials I look at, which is the ability of, of materials to essentially uh, withstand a, a load at high temperature. Those properties are, the, the creep properties are, are maximized or are improved when you remove uh, grain boundaries, when you remove the presence of different grains and you promote the formation of a single grain that, that basically spans the whole component. And, and when you do that, you, you suddenly get uh, better high temperature properties. But you don't get better properties across the board. Um, a single crystal material actually does worse in fatigue, for example, right? Um, so it's not always that you try to achieve a particular structure because that structure gives you the best properties across the board. You try and achieve that particular structure because that tailors the properties to the, the, the mix of properties you want for the particular application. So that is something to be, to be mindful of, that it's not just about trying to always achieve for the same 
type of material for the same type of, of structure. Uh, there is very much a need to have single crystal materials, but also polycrystalline materials. So that is something that is nice to consider. On, on the making of these things, it's, it's really difficult. Uh, making single crystals, particularly alloys that are single crystal, is very, very difficult indeed. It requires specialized processes. In the case of alloys, this is done through something called direct, directional solidification. So you try and solidify your component from one end to the opposite end in, in almost a linear fashion. This is different to a traditional casting method where your component generally cools and solidifies from the outer inwards, right? So you try to have this directional uh, solidification process. That requires uh, high temperature gradients. So you need to set up a system that has uh, a transition from hot to cold uh, that is very quick and, and one directional. And, and if you do that, then you can get this very strong thermal gradients that, that get your material to solidify in one direction. But uh, there is lots of things that can go wrong um, in the process. And interestingly, it's a process that is also affected by scale. If, you're, if you make a process and you know it works for a blade that is about 10 centimeters big, and you want to try replicate that same process, but make a bigger blade that is maybe 20 centimeters big, um, everything has to change. It's not the same. And, uh, and so scaling up or scaling down um, is, is not very simple. And I mention this because looking forward, uh, I mean, the, the alloys that I work on are mostly used in jet engines and, and flight. And so looking forward at sustainability challenges in, 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 in aviation, one of the things that uh, uh, is on the horizon is this idea of having hybrid planes, i.e. planes that uh, have fans uh, that are driven by electric motors. And the electricity for those electric motors is delivered by uh, a gas turbine, a, a small jet engine that is sitting somewhere within the plane. And if you do this right, you can get very, very efficient electric motors and you can get a very, very efficient jet engine, a very, very efficient gas turbine uh, that produces your electricity. Um, and this is in a way better than using batteries because batteries are, are heavy and, and they've got issues with, with capacity, right? So uh, it's much, uh, uh, from a point of uh, view of, of powering flight, it's much easier to have fuel um, than, than batteries. Um, and uh, in order to have these very efficient gas turbines, you need to start miniaturizing a lot of these components. And that brings a whole set of challenges to do with the materials themselves. Um, and so one of the things that, that Birmingham is, is actually specializing on is, is the uh, processing methods that, that are required uh, to build all these components and, and to see how these would have to be modified to make smaller and smaller parts. Uh, and that's not going to be easy in order to, to achieve what, what we want to do. Uh, but if we do that, then we could, in principle, make a very, very small, compact, efficient gas turbine, which then is able to provide enough power to drive two, three, four, five, six fans that drive uh, your plane more efficiently than a current gas turbine. So there's quite a lot there in terms of materials. Um, oftentimes people think of metallurgy as something that has already been developed. We've, we've done everything, and in reality, we haven't. Uh, we are barely scratching the surface. When you're kind of researching these things, and, and you, I know you do a lot of, of modeling and, and analysis, so what you're essentially doing is, is pushing the boundaries of, of what we know and, and what we can sense as humans ourselves. You know, um, all, all modeling essentially is just trying to extend our understanding to a, to a realm that we can't easily measure or, or see. So I, I was interested to ask you about how these systems continue to develop, you know, when we're essentially operating in the dark pushing in, into realms that we don't know about, and also how things like AI and machine learning might play a role in, in development of these kinds of things in the future? Again, very interesting question. I, I, if you look back at the history of development of, of material science and engineering, or metallurgy, let's, let's, let's stick to metallurgy perhaps, because that's the field I'm, I'm most familiar with. You can, you can look back maybe 60, 70, 80 years. I mean, a lot of the understanding of how metals and alloys behave has been developed over the last 100, 150 years, right? And a lot of this has happened before the existence of tools that allowed us to really 
probe the inner structure of materials. I mean, there was a revolution in material science and in metallurgy when electron microscopes came about, right? Before then, um, you really were stuck with, with an optical microscope. That was it. And, and everything you did, you could do by testing the properties of materials and looking at things under an optical microscope and, and trying to make sense of, of what you observed would happen. And that led to uh, lots of theories. Um, and these theories, uh, it's quite surprising how some of these theories turned out to be true. Um, I will, I'm always fascinated by the fact that people were able to theorize the existence of dislocations uh, before being able to observe them. Uh, and, and now we can see them. Uh, in, you know, decades later, we were able to see them using electron microscopes. But uh, before then, people came up with the concept which was very much a theoretical concept uh, based on how they thought the material would behave uh, under uh, stress. Um, and I, I kind of find that fascinating. And, and that process, I, I worry sometimes that, that I, I don't have that kind of ability because nowadays, if I want to try and understand the behavior of a material, there are so many tools available to us. Uh, if I want to understand a mechanism, I'm just going to come out with an experiment where I can actually observe that mechanism, right? And, and I don't need to make up a theory about it. I can see it, <laughs> not with my eyes, but with whatever technique I use. And, and I think sometimes that, that uh, uh, means we, we have to be, I guess it means we have to have different, uh, different types of creativity. Um, I guess maybe 120 years we needed to have a, a creativity that, that allowed us to theorize mechanisms that we could never um, possibly uh, uh, observe. Uh, whereas now it's about designing experiments that allow us to observe mechanisms that we, we do not want to theorize. <laughs> you know, so it, we haven't, I don't think we have lost anything in, in this transition, but I think we have somewhat shifted from a world where we could make a theory up and then test it and check that our model would, would hold true, but not really be able to observe the mechanism itself uh, to a world today where in many cases in material science, we are actually able to observe the mechanisms using one of the many uh, available experimental techniques uh, that are out there. And when we're not able to use experimental techniques, we've got plenty of modeling tools that allow us to really probe the details of, of those, those behaviors. And, and so we have got quite a lot of power now, in a way, to try and really probe the, the mechanisms uh, at, the, at the bottom of, of how uh, materials behave. Um, and that, I don't think, was available to us many, many years ago. Uh, and we have that now. And a lot of that, I guess, is based on, on, on physics and, and chemistry and theories in physics and chemistry that are rather fundamental. So the work I do uses uh, quantum mechanics to, to make predictions on how metals and elements interact in alloys and, 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 uh, and uh, in metals. Whereas perhaps a uh, hundred years ago, I'd have to come up with, with uh, thoughts and, and ideas and, and my own model of how this behavior would happen. Now I can use quantum mechanics to actually model it and, 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 and look at that behavior and draw my conclusions based on, on actual data that is closer to the actual mechanism that I'm trying to observe. Yeah, it's a fascinating world, I guess, where, where we now have a lot more available at our disposal than we used to in the past. So now we're almost operating on theories and conclusions based on what we do know, whereas in the past, maybe more things were coming out of what we didn't know and what we were curious about. And that, that gave rise to, to ideas that were then explored rather than, okay, we have this huge breadth of scientific knowledge from which we can draw and almost make conclusions before we've even seen anything happen or yeah uh, and and you know it was a lot more speculative and that uh, sometimes I mean know about the fact that they they people 150 years ago could get it right um, but what we often don't see is the number of times they got it wrong <laughs> and so you hear stories I don't know if you've uh, you might you might remember me telling in, in lectures some of these stories but uh, you know for, for metals and, and alloys for example uh, people knew, uh, didn't quite know why, but they knew that by quenching steel, you could get steel to be harder, right? And so they were trying to replicate the same process in aluminium alloys. And in aluminium alloys, it just doesn't work. Um, you, if you quenched an aluminium alloy that was 
uh, a specific type of aluminum alloy, like an aluminum copper alloy, it gets softer. Um, and so they, they were trying to make sense of this and, and they couldn't. So they, you know, people spent years trying to quench aluminum alloys, trying to get some sort of hardening effect. And now, you know, you could, you could obviously do that, look at a microstructure and go, of course, you, you would not. You know, why, why were you even doing that? You know, <laughs> why have you wasted years of your time doing that? Um, uh, but at the time, that wasn't possible, right? So people had to kind of um, make a theory and go away and test it. And, and sometimes those tests would take decades, you know. In many ways, probably material science back then was very much the particle physics of today, right? where people come up with, with some big theory and then you have to spend decades planning an experiment and then carrying out that experiment to find out that, yeah, your theory was about correct, but then you now have this other bit that you don't quite understand. And, and you know, so I think, yeah, you could say material science engineering 150 years ago was, was, was probably at the point where, where particle physics has been in the last few decades. So. Yeah, something I've been, I've been really interested in recently is, going even further back and kind of mm -hmm. thinking about where these ideas even came from. So I, I know some of the earliest forms of steel that have been discovered were, were invented by Vikings who thought they were imbuing their swords with the souls of animals they'd killed. But what they were actually doing was they were putting bones in the furnace with their swords mm -hmm. and the carbon from the bones was, was getting into the steel and, and causing a hardening yeah. effect. And, you know, the, these things can come out of almost accidental kind of mysticism, symbolic perhaps, and they, you know, people just doing things not really based on any scientific reasoning, just by accident. There's a monk, a German monk in the 12th century who, who wrote in a book that the, the best possible quench you could get was by using the urine of a small red-headed boy to quench your skin. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, the, these things, you know, while they're kind of funny to think about, it, it does make, make me wonder sometimes that maybe in, in the modern era of knowing so much and, and, and kind of pursuing scientific discoveries based on everything that we've learned, in, in recent years so far, maybe we're closing ourselves off to those moments of serendipity that actually lead to really big leaps and bounds in, in, in understanding, you know, just by doing something kind of unrelated to pursuing scientific discovery, but accidentally give us some, some great knowledge that, that proves to be really fundamental. I mean, stuff does happen by accident. Uh, I think, uh, you know, uh, you have situations in even nowadays where, where things are, are a bit random and, and you get a stroke of luck and you have a new material or you, you suddenly realize what, uh, you know, what, what has gone wrong or what has gone right. I mean, uh, you know, this, this brings me back. There, there are sometimes things that go wrong and those things going wrong allow you to uh, discover new bits of science you weren't expecting. Um, the direct uh, example I've got of that is to do with some, something uh, in my field, um, in directional solidification, in fact, where you know, it's very difficult to um, actually uh, understand how this directional solidification happens. Um, and uh, I had a colleague a few years ago who was carrying out directional solidification experiments and had a situation where the mold uh, broke and, and the liquid metal just poured out of the mold. Um, and uh, that allowed the, the, that research team to actually look at the structure of the solid liquid interface, which is forming dendrites, which are little structures that kind of poke into the liquid from the solid um, uh, to a, a level of, of uh, detail that was not that is not possible with with a traditional metal if you had to do it in situ while you were doing that process you would have to stick that in, in an x-ray machine and try to to get information through x-rays but that wouldn't be quite as high you know wouldn't be quite high resolution enough to be able to see what they were able to see by accidentally breaking a mold off and it's something that you wouldn't kind of think to do because breaking a mold of, of, of metal, molten metal. You know, it's not something you, you can easily get uh, health and safety to, to agree on, right? Um, and, and sometimes this stuff happens by accident and then you, you're left with something that you can study that, that you wouldn't otherwise be, uh, that would, you wouldn't otherwise have. So, uh, so stuff, accidents do happen and, and stuff like that does happen, I think, even, even today. Um, 
perhaps not as not as uh, much as it used to, and perhaps we we don't attach mystical meaning to it, but um, it still does happen today. I think. And something else I wanted to touch on was the um, the ethics of material science. Mm -hmm. I think it's quite easy kind of in the West to pursue innovation and, and, and push boundaries in, in science without a, a huge amount of regard for our resource use or the, or the impact it might have in, in the developing world. Kind of consumerism and, and this assumption that resources will be indefinitely available to serve our appetites is, is part of the reason why climate action is so difficult to, to put into practice. So I was just wondering if you had any thoughts about how the material science community can help people rethink the materials they use. Um, for example, I doubt it crosses many people's mind that the cobalt in their mobile phone could have been mined by a child slave in Africa, for example. Do you think it's the responsibility of the scientists and the innovators to make more responsible choices in their research? Or is it the responsibility of designers or governments or kind of how do we how do we bake the story of a material's origin into the product that it becomes? I think it's a responsibility of the scientists in that I think scientists should be mindful when they explore new materials or new alternatives or new ways of making a material better. They should always be mindful of of the broader context and um, and and other costs that may not be visible readily to 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 the science that you're doing in the lab. Um, and the example there is actually my work on on nickel-based superalloys and cobalt-based superalloys. So you know traditionally in, in these jet engines we use nickel-based superalloys, and since two thousand and six two thousand seven there has been a, a drive to develop new versions of these superalloys that is based on cobalt rather than nickel. Um, that obviously comes with, with huge ramifications from, from ethical points of view. Um, uh, and uh, it's something that when I worked on, on cobalt-based superalloys uh, was, was, was you know, something I, I thought about. Um, now, was it something that would have stopped me working and on developing uh, of cobalt-based superalloys? Probably not. And the, the reason why I say that it wouldn't affect my research in, in, the, in the area is that by researching cobalt-based superalloys, I was also understanding more of nickel-based superalloys. And so by uh, you know, developing new cobalt-based superalloys, uh, it, you know, my, my science, my research wasn't just about developing new cobalt-based superalloys. That was how perhaps I would sell it to a funder, how I would uh, highlight uh, its impact. But in reality, the impact was much, much broader than that. Um, and my primary, personally, my primary motivation for studying cobalt-based superalloys is that it was a very similar system to nickel-based superalloys. And by figuring out the differences, we could actually improve nickel-based superalloys as well. Um, and, and it culminated, actually, with, with a fun um, uh, anecdote of, of, of me pretty much at the same time submitting two research proposals. Uh, one uh, where I was arguing for the replacing of uh, nickel with cobalt and another one to a different funding body arguing the opposite, <laughs> uh, replacing uh, co uh, cobalt with nickel. Um, and and uh, the, the second was very much driven by ethical concerns, um, i.e., um, uh, you know, cobalt is in all of these things, we should replace it, and the best way to replace it is to replace it with nickel, um, usually. I mean, if you look at the periodic table, they're next to each other. Um, and on the other end, I, I, I was submitting a proposal saying, well, nickel superalloys are getting to the end of, of their kind of development uh, envelope. We, we should look at alternatives. The alternative is cobalt. <laughs> and, and I think, you know, as scientists, we have, we have to do that. We have to keep looking at new ways of improving materials. And I think when we, um, when we study these things, we, we never know what might come out of them, right? So, so there is, you know, I, I think there is an, an imperative to, to look into uh, materials even when uh, you can see and recognize that um, perhaps the material developed out of, out of whatever element is problematic may not actually ever, ever uh, happen or uh, uh, may happen and cause um, issues to uh, a, a community. And that's where government should step in, in my view. Um, so I think essentially that there should be government regulating the use of materials, the recycling of materials, um, so that these issues are, are minimized. Um, 
Um, so yeah, so that would be my my personal place where, where I, I, I draw the boundary. Um, uh, uh, simply because I think there is lots of discoveries you, you might accidentally make by, by looking at something that you, you think, yeah, this will never quite work. Um, uh, for a variety of reasons, maybe it's mined unethically, maybe it's too expensive, maybe it's too rare, or whatever reason. Um, uh, but uh, that then leads to something else which you weren't expecting. And I think if we had to stop ourselves um, in, the very, in the very early stages of fundamental research, um, then we would we would not make as many prom as much progress as as, as we would uh, otherwise. So that was that that you know. That kind of is where my conscience sits, and then obviously the problem is that you still have to have governments regulating uh, the use of these elements, and particularly the recycling of these elements. The nice thing about metals, actually, is that they are really, really easily recyclable, relatively, comparatively speaking. You can recycle metals and alloys uh, very easily. Um, vast majority of steel that we use is recycled, and people don't often realize that. Um, if you see a building being teared down, you'll see usually diggers taking out every bit of steel that they can find because that all gets recycled. Um, and uh, I don't think people often realize how, how recyclable metals and alloys are. Um, um, and, and that is good and that should be promoted and that goes down to even elements that are used in, in, in mobile phones, etc. And so there is quite a lot of push now to to look at what, what you call the circular economy trying trying to get um, all these elements back into into the um, into uh, uh, the manufacturing process at different stages um, so you could you could see yourself recycling the whole material i.e. an alloy a steel a nickel based super alloys or splitting that into elements and recycling the elements themselves um, uh, into into different uses into different materials and I think that's quite important and and it applies uh, to many situations not just cobalt but lithium um, some rare earth elements um, it applies to situation where ethical issues are in place it applies it's it it, it, may, it has economics it makes economic sense um, in in many in many instances actually um, and uh, and also uh, environmentally it makes sense as well um, and the use of the, the, the access of, of raw materials is something that is incredibly important. Um, and if you look at a company like Rolls-Royce um, or any kind of uh, manufacturer, sometimes they actually own mines themselves. Um, so Rolls-Royce sometimes might own mines of, of elements that it thinks are strategic. And then it will sell those elements to companies that uh, prepare, make those elements into the raw materials they need to make their components. Uh, and so they are kind of, they have uh, manufacturers, they are, they, they are materials producers somewhere in the middle between two entities that they own um, uh, because the, the access of those raw materials is so important. Um, uh, so, yeah. Um, but um, I think there is lots of things that are, that are happening out there. And, and in terms of the research, um, the more we understand about materials, the more we can make sure that these elements are used if they need to be used, right? So, you know, if I understand how, what the process, what, what, the, uh, what the mechanisms uh, are that, that lead to cobalt being a positive alloying element in, in my alloys, I can then find ways of replacing it. Um, I can find uh, alternatives to it. I can understand how to tweak the properties using other elements. I can understand exactly in what specific situations I may need to actually use cobalt and where I can do without. Um, and I think this idea of um, being able to tailor materials very precisely to the specific application you're after and make sure that you don't have any unnecessary elements in there that you, you, you don't need. I think that, lead, that will lead to a positive um, societal um, impact, I think, um, and, and a better use of, of our resources, which are, which are finite. It's almost as important to be able to justify why we wouldn't use a particular material as it is to be able to justify why we would. Yeah. So I, I recently learned about some particular iron nickel alloys that, that can only form inside meteors. So like they've only, they've only really been found because of meteors that have landed on Earth. Um, and the reason for that is because certain structures can only form under 
the temperatures and pressures that that exist in a meteor over you know cooling over millions and millions of years um and these are conditions which obviously are very difficult to replicate in a lab here on earth um, i was wondering if, if you could talk about whether or not there's kind of a theoretical understanding of the limits of metallurgy so kind of what is actually possible in theory uh to be produced even if we can't physically do it here on earth or um are there kind of alloys and structures or forms of materials that we don't have any conception of i think there are i mean if you if you look at the vast majority of metallurgy it's usually very much atmospheric pressure metallurgy right um we we do not really have a, a deep understanding of what would happen at different pressures um simply because the kind of pressures that we would need to have ha something different happen would be too big for us to 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 create in an effective way so essentially at the moment you know for the vast majority of metallurgy research it doesn't really make any sense to play around with with pressures because the kind of pressures we would need to <coughs> actually have in order to to uh, have a yield a result that's different to the thing we get when when we do it on earth um would just be prohibitive or, or impossible to achieve um there is a whole branch of physics that tries to understand what happens to the core of of, of planets and stars and i think um uh, it's it's almost more to do with physics and geology than with material science um uh, because uh, to then extract those materials and use them in some way um, it's it's still out of out of well, any realm of possibilities i think um, one aspect that I, I think will be closer to us um, is uh, processes in zero gravity um, so if i do kind of think uh, decades in the future <clears throat> not not hundreds of years in the future but decades in the future i think processes in zero gravity or a different uh, different gravitational pulls i think that there can be quite some interesting uh, science there um uh, because a lot of uh, the solidification for example much of the solidification processes that that uh, we use for nickel based superalloys rely on on this process to be carried out in 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 on earth gravity and um, so using earth gravity as as a, as a gravitational pull and if you carry them out somewhere else in space or on another planet then it will work different and it will come with a different set of challenges or a different set of opportunities who knows so um there have been people that have uh, worked in in the school in in, in birmingham uh, itself for example we've had um we've had uh, a phd student some years ago who developed a 3d printer um to melt metals in zero gravity and and took it on a, on a, one of those vomit comet planes to try and see what happened if you tried to 3d print metal in space um or at zero gravity so that was more of a i guess a, a, a demonstration rather than anything else but the, the point was to see whether it could be feasible so that then perhaps you could have then started a project about uh, looking and i think there is a project in fact going on about looking up uh, how to best um, handle solidification in zero gravity um, now that could be important for manufacturing components on mars or on the moon uh, uh, so that's uh, you know obviously you you may see one distant day in the future where we may need to set up a factory on mars or on the moon but actually closer than that uh, repair right you you may need to be able to weld things in space um, and welding in space uh, it you know is is how do you do that right you have no gravity you have uh, no air pressure you know like you, how how do you how can you weld something in space um it's something that may need to be uh looked at sometime in the future because you cannot just send a ship without the possibility of fixing it in some way um so that's uh, an area that i think will be fascinating um uh looking forwards uh but uh looking at these extreme pressures i i, I think it's still very much a long way away for us to be able to look at these materials and, and and try and see how we could use them um to our advantage or find ways of making them on earth um in a, in a cost effect uh, effective way so yeah but that's that
Thank you. This is really absolutely fascinating answers. Thank you so much. Um, I, I had you speaking for, for a long time, just kind of to, to wrap things up, but just kind of like to, to kind of bring it home a little bit. And ask you about um, kind of your your own career trajectory and, and, and what's kind of pushed you to take on more of a pastoral role alongside your research in university and, and what are your kind of methods for inspiring the material scientists of the future? So I think it was very much again accident um uh i i when i started off my um my degree in material science i i found that um i had a group of friends um uh, that we, we spend a lot of time revising with and i very early on i found that by explaining things to other people uh, they would become suddenly clearer to myself um and that's how I started actually really enjoying teaching. And so I, I would basically set up these massive revision sessions with all my friends where I would teach them uh, or I would, I would kind of explain some aspects of, of the courses that we were studying that we were, they were struggling with. And I did it not because I particularly, uh, because I felt I understood it better, but I, I did feel that I just perhaps understood it a little better than they did. And by explaining it, I really developed my understanding even further. Uh, and so I benefited from that as much as they think they benefited from, from me explaining stuff to them. Um, so they, they thought I was doing it because I was being altruistic, but in reality, I was just, I was just really doing it for myself. Um, and so I, I really enjoyed that. And I, and I think, uh, I, as I started my PhD, I then, uh, did, did more teaching. I, I and I tried to find as, as many opportunities for, for me to teach and for me to teach in an independent way. Uh, oftentimes, PhD students are, are given uh, uh, perhaps a lab to demonstrate or, or something very kind of um, a finished product where they just have to uh, perform something that kind of has already been scripted. And I try to find uh, opportunities for me to actually develop bits of new teaching that were in there. Um, and I had that opportunity to do that and I really enjoyed it. And I think at that point, that's when I started thinking, maybe I should really think about uh, teaching. Um, for some reason, I still was quite a, I, I wasn't looking, I never saw my future in academia. Um, I mean, after my undergraduate, I, I, I almost got into a PhD by, by kind of inertia. Um, I had some jobs offer, uh, job offers, but they required me to move to other places and I wanted to stay in London for personal reason um, and so I ended up doing a PhD in a topic I liked but it wasn't it, it, it almost felt like it was a, um, uh, an accident um, and at the end of my PhD again I started looking for um, for an engineering job uh, because I felt that I wanted to be an engineer um, I started looking even outside of engineering um, uh, because I felt that the academic career was going to be too difficult. And when, uh, uh, when I was about to finish, I, I kind of got a job offer from, from a, a leading professor in the States and, and she was based in Santa Barbara and it just sounded too good to say no. So, <laughs> so I kind of went, I, I kind of always picked the path of least resistance basically. And, and then I ended up finding myself in academia. And, and I think it was when I moved to Birmingham and got my first permanent job that I realized, oh, yeah, shit, I'm, I'm, I'm now in academia. Um, uh, you know, this is it. Um, there is no way out. <laughs> um, and, you know, I, I was kind of pleased with that, actually, because I, I do enjoy um, teaching a lot. I do enjoy interacting with students. Um, I really like explaining things. I like learning new things. So I always find that whenever I teach, I try to pick things that if I have to teach something new, I try to pick something that perhaps I'm not as familiar with um, because part of the enjoyment of teaching it will be learning it to a depth um, that is deeper than, 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 than I had before so that I could then be confident enough to teach it to other people. Um, and I think that process is something I really like, um, uh, the process of continuously learning something new. Um, so I think if there is something that probably ties together my fascination with becoming an academic and being an academic is, is learning. Learning and, and myself and teaching, and, and that also includes, I guess, the, the learning you do when you do research, right? So whenever you do research, you always have to learn something about 
some theory that you didn't know before or some methodology that you never used before. So you're continuously learning something new. And uh, it, it's something I really enjoy. So I think that was, was how I, I stumbled upon, upon that. And, and the teaching is just um, a way to um, help that learning, I think. Um, and in terms of, it, w- it was a second part of that question, which was what, what, uh, what is your, your, your secret? Was it, was it what, what was the second part of that question? Yeah, what I, your, I think I said, what, what are your methods of inspiring the material scientists of the future? I, I think it's, I think it's about showing your own passion for a subject. I find that the, you know, you could say you could say anything to anyone, and as long as you say it with passion and enthusiasm, they they will t- they will tend to be on board. They might you know like I've had it before where I mean I I do a lot of outreach talks and I do a lot of um, kind of public uh, dissemination talks. And I've had it before where, where people come up to me after a lecture, particularly parents, because parents are a little bit more, um, uh, more confident. So they, they come up to me and they say, boy, you know, like what you talked about is such a boring subject, but you made it so interesting. Um, and, and so they kind of, uh, and, I, and I see them, I guess they, they kind of sit there thinking, I've never been interested in this stuff, but I kind of like, and I kind of listen, and I like to listen and I like to learn that, that whatever happens in materials. And I think, that is the key thing is to make uh, make sure your your passion and enthusiasm gets across when you talk about whatever you're talking um uh, and and that's the, the only secret really great thank you so much no really worries. inspiring and, and just fascinating insights and it's so good to talk to you just busy uh, i guess um we're getting to the end of a, of a very different year so yeah. um uh it's it's kind of you know last year we just finished in this way this year was was all different so it's just a bit difficult um tough lots of work um lots of you know uh fighting fire (laughs) Uh, but it's almost at the end um and i think some aspects of it have actually worked really well um so i don't know what you have heard but from chatting to uh, people, particularly in older years, um, some of what some of the changes that have been made to 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 actually tackle the pandemic have worked quite well from an educational perspective. So it, it will be interesting to see how this shapes education going forward. I mean, you could you could argue that for some some particular modules, lectures uh, are useless, right? The, they shouldn't they they should not exist anymore um for some things right for for other things it kind of works but for some things it it, it just doesn't make sense um so it's uh it's i think it has put a dent into the traditional way of teaching which is just basically lecture um and uh and you know teaching going forward i think will be a more diverse uh, which is which is a good thing so yeah yeah definitely no i was just thinking today about how probably over a year ago, um, you were probably one of the first people to kind of say, oh, I think this is going to be a big deal. Like I kind of remember we, we, had, a, we had a few meetings and we sort of were saying, oh, what's it going to be like? And you were saying, oh, you know, don't get your hopes up that this is going to be over soon. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, exactly. I, I, you know, maybe I was a bit of a pessimist. <laughs> I, I, actually, I was, I was an optimist relative to some friends of mine. Um, uh, I, I um, uh, well, an initially I did. I, uh, sorry, you, you were an optimist with relation to what actually happened. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I think I would, I would have. I mean, part of me would have hoped that with uh, very early on, um, I would have hoped that with the summer and with uh, social distancing, um, that come the autumn, things would have been different, but that we wouldn't have had on other surges, basically. I, I you know, um, and I think I, I got to realize that there were gonna be other surges in winter. Um, I think it was probably May, June, but up until May, June, I was, I was still kind of, I think, hopeful that um, we would get over the big, the first wave and, and sort of 
settle down over the summer, figure out how to deal with it. And then that, that we would be uh, a little bit, not quite back to normal. I, I knew that there would always be some sort of restrictions. I mean, I'm, I think there will be restrictions coming this, this, this winter, this coming winter. I mean, you know, not to the same level, but there will be. Um, I think people will still be wearing masks, frankly. Um, and after all, it kind of makes sense. I mean, yeah. wearing a mask is not a big deal. Yeah. Well, exactly. <laughs> um, yes, that's been going on in, in places like China for forever, really. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, whenever right. they so, yeah. and, and really understanding the aversion that people have against masks, I just, I, I, I don't understand. <laughs> yeah. So what's the, what's the situation been like in terms of, of labs in the materials department? I know, I know the labs have been difficult, particularly this second semester. In first semester, we, we were okay because in first semester, it was still um, a situation where we had essentially, uh, we, we could do easily uh, one meter plus or or two meter social distancing um, and so we could have people in labs in in a rota granted yeah um, uh, and and so in first semester we, we had we had labs going on um, uh, albeit you know we uh, we always had to have a virtual alternative for people that aren't here or couldn't come or had to self-isolate or whatever so uh, that was that. And second semester, because of the, the wave, we, we just couldn't do it. Um, so very early on, I mean, the, the first part of the semester, we were basically at a point where we couldn't do anything face-to-face. -face. And then when face-to-face -face teaching was allowed to return for practical lab courses, um, the, the understanding was that social distancing, social distancing should, be, should be higher than what it was in first semester. I don't know whether that was driven by um, actual guidance from government or just being cautious about things, but basically the, the determination was that one meter plus wasn't enough um, in, in semester towards the end of semester two. So, so that meant that we had to further reduce capacity in labs. Um, and at that point, it really, whereas before in, in first semester, uh, not doing labs was or labs were opt out. I you were scheduled for a lab session. You'd opt out if you couldn't do it. Uh, towards the end of second semester, it was very much opt in. You can come to do a lab, but yeah, no, suddenly everyone was desperate to get to get back to campus. I guess. Yeah, well, you'd say that, but again, in first uh, just before Easter, I had my lab for for physical material science, and again, that was opt in. And out of 60 students, about 20 registered to come. Um, so a third. Um, uh, everyone else just watched the videos online and, and did everything. And I mean, I've, I've offered students that if when things get back to normal, if they want to do the lab or they want to have some experience with those tools, they, they can come back at any time and do it. Um, uh, but yeah, so we'll, we'll see how that goes. And now, um, again, because we are meant to be, so we're, we it's difficult because the, the, the biggest challenge actually has been the fact that we have a situation where we have some students that are not here right and and some students that are here um and all universities essentially want to guarantee to all students that whether they're here or not they get the same experience right <laughs> and that is a difficult thing to do <laughs> It's not easy. Um, uh, and so, you know, I, so if I have a lab, I've got to find some way of conveying that same learning objective, same um, experience to someone who's not here. Um, uh, so it's not quite as simple as, oh, I'll just put on some face-to-face -face activity. Whatever you decide to do face-to-face, -face, you have to find or find a way of doing something equally as good for people that are not here. Um, and if you're doing something for people that are not here, you might then have to replicate it for people that want to do it face to face or something like that. So, so it's just it's it's, it's difficult. Um, so next year, we expect that there will be a situation where government will stop. At the moment, basically, government has said if someone wants to do it long distance, if someone wants to stay in China, for example, and study in the UK, that's absolutely fine. We expect that next year this will be stricter. So you'll only be able not to be attending university face-to-face -face, only if there is some specific travel restriction. Uh, and so the expectation is that most, most people will be 
doing things, vast majority of people will be doing things face to face. But even then, you, you, we cannot go back to the same, you know, like, I mean, for us, for materials, it's easier uh, because we only have uh, at most 100 students. Um, but imagine, you know, you cannot go back to a, a 400 seat lecture theater packed full of people. You just can't. Yeah. So, so do you think these, these um, challenges in general have, like, obviously they've been challenging and hard to, hard to get over, but do you think there have been any, uh, so actually the question I'm going to ask is, do you think the research capacity of the department has gone down um, or do you think there are some circumstances where doing this kind of thing remotely has led to, to new or, or different work being done that wouldn't have been carried out uh, in person and, and maybe change the way some people are thinking about research and, and the way they, they progress projects? I mean, I mean, obviously, at the height of the pandemic, I would probably say to some extent, research productivity has gone down, not just in our school or in our university, but across the board, just by the nature of the fact that many people had to look after families, right? I mean, you know, uh, you had kids at home and not in school. So uh, you had a, a limit on the number of hours you could provide to your employment. So, so that I think is um, why, in, particularly in some parts of the year, I think, in, yeah, last year, particularly during the first wave, etc. Um, and then perhaps earlier this year when we had the big third wave, um, uh, as far as everything else, um, I, I, you know, in the school, we were the first to open as a school in, in the university. So in June, we opened back up. Um, uh, and so we had people in labs doing experiments, doing research in June. Um, uh, we had interns, uh, you know, I mean, some of, I think even some of your, some of your roommates were, were actually interning, I think. Um, and, and so, you know, in that, in that way, that hasn't really um, stopped. Um, it's, it's gone. Uh, it's just been different. Um, uh, people had to plan a little bit more, um, but things have somewhat progressed. Um, uh, it's just the difficulty of navigating with personal circumstances of people that perhaps cannot come because they've got family or they cannot travel or they cannot um, uh, they cannot maybe, you know, maybe some research relied on experiments being carried out somewhere else rather than them carrying them out somewhere else that to find other ways of doing those experiments. So that there have obviously have to be, have, have to have been adjustments to that. But the other side of the question is whether it has opened new avenues of research. Um, I mean, uh, yeah, uh, certainly there, I, I think there, I cannot think of anything specific within the school but there have been many instances um, of research being kind of started and motivated by, by, by immediate issues to do with the pandemic. Um, uh, so I know of colleagues or friends of people that are in the material science and engineering field that, that have had projects that have been kind of born out of the situation we are in. So, um, so that, that, um, I think that has happened, which is which is good. Um, but I think the biggest difficulty, as I said, is is the person is dealing with the personal uh, situations of 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 everyone who is who is in the community, and that's been a bit difficult. Um, but I guess that's true of everything, right? So, <laughs> so something else that springs to mind there is that possibly uh, things like simulation and computing may, may have kind of been taken up slightly more by people, you know, not being able to go into yeah. an experiment in person. Yeah, so, you know, there, there have been, um, uh, for, for a few people, um, I, and I don't know, how, are you on Twitter by any chance? Uh, yeah. Are you on Twitter? So there is, uh, there's been a lot of discussions about this because um, uh, early on and throughout the pandemic, there have been people every now and again that have come up with, with um, with tweets or, or messages along the lines of, you know, um, uh, when stuff like this happens, people have the opportunity of, of staying at home and, and just think big thoughts, right? Um, uh, and a lot of people pointed to, you know, uh, uh, big scientists in the past that were stuck in a, in a pandemic of sorts or, or some sort of war or some sort of issue that, that made them be at home for a long time. 
Uh, I think then people quickly point out, well, they most likely didn't really have to look after family. They probably had help that, that, that looked after family and they, they, had, they, they were free to think um, for, for months on end by themselves, which is great. Uh, whereas a lot of people maybe aren't because of, because of their family circumstances. Um, so I guess it, 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 you, you, have, yeah, you have to always be mindful of, of personal circumstances. But beside that, I, I think it has, for some people, allowed them to perhaps uh, look at how they could diversify their research to, for it to be a bit more resilient or a bit different, um, uh, sim similar ways to how education has changed. So essentially, people have, have transitioned their research um, to, 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 towards in a direction where, where things are a little bit more resilient, where they have had the opportunity of, of, of learning perhaps new methods about part of the groups that develop or specialize in different methods that uh, allow them to have a, a more diverse portfolio. Um, and that has happened for projects and undergraduate projects, it's happened for PhD and, and researchers uh, because, you know, um, other than uh, you, you, there, there were instances where you needed access to a lab and that was just was impossible. So what do you do then? I guess you come up with different things to do. Um, so yeah, in my case, my research has always been recently based on modeling and simulation. So that really, you know, in that way, um, I wasn't affected by the closure of labs. Um, and whenever it came to discussing undergraduate projects or or internships or things like that. As far as I was concerned, they could be run on campus, they could be run off campus, didn't really matter. Um, uh, uh, but for some people that strongly rely on experiments, it's been really, really difficult. Um, so yeah.